Hello and welcome to Film Inquiries, the latest. This is a podcast series tackling the latest movie news, movie trends, and movie releases. This week, we got two special guests. The first off, I want to introduce Emily Wheeler from Film Inquiry. Emily, how are you doing this fine Sunday afternoon, evening? I guess it's afternoon. It's like 4.30 where I am. Yeah, it's right in between. Who knows? Um, I mean, we've, we've, we've all learned in the past year that time is relative and it doesn't really matter. So, uh, That's true. <laughs> call it, yeah, call, call it whatever you want. Um, I am doing great considering. How about you? Uh, I'm... You know what? I'm going to try and be positive. I'm trying to be a little bit more positive this year. So I, I'm going to say I'm doing good uh, considering everything else going on in the world. But I have you on this week because One Night in Miami is coming out. Uh, it's not out right now when we're recording, but by the time this episode drops, it will be available on Amazon Prime uh, for subscribers to view there. And you listed it as one of your favorite movies of 2020, so I thought you would be a great guest to have on and talk about it. I caught up with the movie a couple weeks ago and thought it was it was very good um, and kind of an interesting companion piece to a movie that we haven't talked about on the show in the last month, but did come out on Netflix over the Christmas holidays, which is Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. And both of these are adaptations of stage plays that I think both together have a lot to say about the black experience in America and are very rich texts to dive into. Um, but I'm, I'm first curious to get your opinions on One Night in Miami, uh, which is directed by one of my favorite people on the planet, Regina King, Oscar winner. Emmy winner, um, and I don't know, just what what, it, what is it about this movie that for you makes it one of the the best of last year? Well, like you said, uh, the theme, the themes and the things that it's discussing is uh, not only very relevant, but it's really complex in the way, particularly in the way this one gets into it, because the way it's structured is it's, it's essentially a conversation between four um, of the most famous black men of their time. I believe it's set in 1964. I could be off at some time in the 60s. Um, it's basically a conversation between Malcolm X, Cassius Clay, Jim Brown, and Sam Cooke. And basically the way the night unfolds is just that they just have this long conversation sort of debating um, how best to use their sort of cultural influence to help uh, black people in general. So one really complex topic there's not really a set answer to that i don't think i don't think this movie is attempting to find a set answer to that it's more about throwing out uh potential options and which which i kind of love yeah yeah exactly that that's one of the things i really loved about this and because it, it isn't coming at it from the perspective of here is the answer it's just like i i don't know what to do about this either but it that's because um, it is such a complex issue that it can fulfill the whole runtime of an of a full length movie. Yeah, and I think one of the more interesting aspects about it is the way it's kind of, you know, I, I, speaking from myself as a white person, a lot of these are issues that I think we think of as very um, pun unintended, very black and white. But I think there are lots of shades of complexity to it. Um, 
for me, one of the more interesting conversations in the movie is between um, Malcolm X and Sam Cooke. And Malcolm X is kind of uh, throwing shade at Sam Cooke for the music he's written and kind of tossing it off as very kind of like poppy romance songs and just sort of telling him like you're you're pandering to this white audience and why don't you write something that like really speaks to the community even going so far as to say bob dylan is saying more in his music to our people than uh than you are in your music and he gets in this interesting conversation where sam cook says he another kind of like diss that malcolm tries to throw at sam cook is saying that your songs and the songs of the artists on your label are being taken by white artists over in europe artists like the rolling stones and they're turning them into bigger hits than you had and i think sam cook finds an interesting way to kind of subvert that and say no you just don't understand the the power dynamics of it because i'm getting paid i still have ownership over the song and my artists and i are still getting paid every time one of those white artists is doing a cover of one of those songs and so i'm taking advantage of this system and still profiting from it and how dare you to say that i am not um that i'm somehow lowering myself when i am uh elevating myself um through this very same system and that just because i'm not singing the song i don't have ownership over the song and then i find like a really interesting debate is you know like the entire history of rock music basically being like white artists taking black songs and like (laughs) you know reaping the 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 sort of work that these these black artists black blues artists have given the material and the white artists are able to kind of cash in on that and and that that's just sort of one specific moment to me of just all these varying conversations and you having these very um titanic figures that are all kind of coming at it from very different angles if that makes sense oh absolutely because um i think a lot of people are going to point to that scene in particular as a really memorable one because it is one where uh two of them are getting into really fine points of this debate and they're approaching it from entirely different places because malcolm x isn't technically uh overly concerned with perhaps the financial side while uh sam cook is coming at it and basically arguing look, I'm making money and then I can turn that money around and do all of these other things with it. It's, it's not like he's just, you know, hoarding that money or, you know, him and his artists are hoarding that money. They're also right. using that money then, you know, to further the cause in other ways. Um, there was another moment I really, really liked, actually. It, it was another kind of two-person conversation. It was between, again, Malcolm X, but uh, then a moment with Jim Brown where they kind of, Cassius Clay and Sam Cooke have both kind of gone off, and these two are left in the hotel room where most of the movie takes place in. And it's one of the few times where um, the character of Malcolm X kind of lets his guard down, because he's sort of instigating everything in this uh, evening. He's pushing everything forward. He's the one with a very clear agenda. So in this moment between the two of him, uh, these two guys, that veneer kind of comes down because Jim Brown kind of calls him out on it. And I think it's a really kind of delicate moment within a movie that is very much about these guys kind of jockeying with each other. Yeah, and I I think one of the more 
maybe this is an opportunity to kind of like compare this a little bit to Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which stars Chadwick Boseman and his final on-screen performance, as well as Viola Davis. And that play, which should be mentioned, is uh, adapted from an August Wilson play from the 80s, has deals with a lot of similar subjects around ownership and um, the sort of business side of music, which I, I don't want to sort of uh, mislead people into thinking that that's the entirety of One Night in Miami, but is, is sort of this one um, conversation piece that I think we've both kind of glommed onto. But you do see a similar conversation kind of happening in the August Wilson adaptation, and in particular, this contrast between uh the viola davis character who is this established blues artist and the whole play kind of takes place around a recording session that her and her band are doing and she is very much in charge of the room and is very much um has her eyes set on i need to preserve my art and preserve the legacy of my music and on contrast the Chadwick Boseman character is very much I I need to make my mark and I need to service whatever audience I need to in order to sort of make that mark and get my foot in the door and there becomes this clash between the Viola Davis character and the Chadwick Boseman character with one person trying to um I guess maintain their legacy and maintain their quote unquote artistic integrity as they see it. And another person who's trying to bust down the doors and trying to, to like move past this, this system that seems to be kept keeping them down and is just trying to do anything in their power to kind of like elevate and sort of advance their career in any way possible. I don't What, what other kind of connections did you see between the two movies? I mean, I did very much enjoy Ma Rainey as well. The, the, the difference for me was, as we were kind of talking about with um, One Night, it's, it, that's more of an approach where neither of them have the answer and everyone's kind of stumbling around and throwing out ideas. Versus mm-hmm. where I think with Ma Rainey, there's really this, as you were saying, this great contrast between Viola Davis's character and Chadwick Boseman's character. And the way I kind of think about that movie is that it's uh, that Viola Davis's character has a very clear control over how to handle her power and how to wield it, while Chadwick Boseman's does not and is quite bad at it. Um, so the movie kind of, uh, it, it doesn't get into as messy of a territory for me because it fe- seems like Viola Davis's character kind of has it figured out and that's how you should be doing it is kind of how it's arguing. Versus One Night in Miami is uh, much messier. Yeah, I think what another kind of great way to kind of uh, look at both of these movies, which I, I would recommend our listeners watch both, and I think it would make a really fascinating double feature. I probably prefer One Night in Miami slightly more, if only because I think it finds um, a much more interesting way in adapting a play so it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel quite as stagey as... Ma Rainey's Black Bottom does, which may may seem a little bit of a weird comparison. I've seen some people who are really big fans of um, this adaptation of Ma Rainey's Black Bottom kind of push back against it and say there's like 
only so much you can do. But I, I think Regina King, um, and I should mention Kent Powers, uh, who wrote One Night in Miami, also one of the writers on uh, Pixar movie Soul that we discussed a few weeks back. Um, but I think both of them in the screenplay for this movie find really fun and interesting ways to kind of get outside the the confines of that hotel room. And even though so much of the movie is kind of these four men wrestling with these really like <laughs> really complex ideas inside this confined space, there's there's sort of room in an outside world for them to kind of explore and flashbacks and musical sequences i mean i i have to give a, a a shout out to leslie odom jr who most people probably um know from the the musical hamilton who plays sam cook and like sounds identical to sam cook <laughs> in this movie i just thought that was so crazy um but i i i, I just think in a toss-up between the two movies there is something i think the one thing that kind of got in the way for me about ma rainey's black bottom is sort of the staginess of it and i never quite got out of my head that like oh i am watching an adaptation of a play and even the acting style is very much lends itself to that kind of like play to the back of the the auditorium uh sort of style that you would see in a play whereas i feel like one night in miami manages to sort of transform itself into a film and something that um is 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 a little bit more fluid and sort of its movement and its staging um that that being said before i toss it back to you i i think both viola davis and i mean good lord this chadwick boseman perform. i mean it, it it is both like electric while also like heartbreaking to watch because i i think so much of the stoicism that people know him for in movies like black panther for example I, I think that that's totally out the window in in this movie, and he is just sort of like, like I said, fiery and electric and charismatic in a way that um, I I don't know. It just make me realize just how great of an actor he was, and how kind of um, tragic it is that it, it he clearly had much more in his tool belt and had a lot more. Um, in his career that, that we sadly are not going to get to witness. For sure. I think a lot of people, you know, as you were saying, know him for his maybe bigger movies. The first time I really uh, took notice of him was a movie called Get On Up, in which he's playing James Brown, which yes. is not at all a small performance. That is a quite no. big and large <laughs> performance. Yeah, <laughs> And rightfully so. And I think, you know, I like that movie a lot. I think his performance in that in particular was amazing um, and really shows the range that he had versus maybe Black Panther was a little bit more of a contained role for him. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and again, he's, as you were saying, absolutely outstanding in Ma Rainey. So it, there is this sense when you're watching that movie of just knowing that this is the last time you're going, probably for most people, the last time you're going to see a new performance from him. And that's a tragedy because he uh, had a lot more in him, I think. Yeah, definitely. And and he at the moment, I would say is, I don't know what in the world the, the state of the Oscars are going to be this year, but I would say I've, I've heard lots of, of people um, kind of put their finger on like that. This is, he's probably going to get a, a best actor for this performance. And, and I, that's the reason I would say to see 
um, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom is. If if anything else, even though I think it never quite transforms itself into a movie, um, kind of beyond a, a stage play, um, that the acting in it is just so electric and um sensational to watch. Um, do you have any kind of like last thoughts about um either that film or One Night in Miami to kind of like push the listeners to check both of them out this weekend. I would agree with you that the reason to check out Ma Rainey is um, for the performances more for, I think Chadwick Boseman's performance as well. I wasn't as taken by Viola Davis. I think she almost gets a little bit lost in the movie. Cause I think Boseman's character is much more interesting. Yeah. It is a very like over the top kind of transformation performance. And, and I'm not as familiar with like a, this play specifically so i don't know if that's kind of written into it but yeah it it is it's a very very like big loud um transformation performance for yeah. lack of a it's better a, word it's a big performance i think is a good way to put it um yes but i mean um i think one of the interesting things um kind of as you were saying earlier to point out the difference between this and really the strengths of one night in miami is you know, Ma Rainey is directed by a guy, George C. Wolfe, who is mostly does plays. He doesn't do as many uh, movies and television. And I think maybe that's why this feels a bit more like a play, because that's what he's used to staging and working in the medium he's used to working in. Versus One Night in Miami, as you said earlier, directed by Regina King. Yes, it is his, her first, uh, I think, featured directorial effort. I think she's done some TV before in the past. Yes. Um, but... I think you can really see that she is comfortable with this medium. And she understood that there, again, I, I have not seen the play on which this is based, but I'm imagining, as you said, there's some flashbacks involved. There's, you know, they find ways to get these guys out of that hotel room. And I, and I have to imagine that's a change for uh, film. And I think it's, I, I would imagine that's something that comes from Regina King and also Kent Powers, as you said, has a background in film as well. They understood the difference between the mediums better, I think, and made changes to accommodate. Because I think when people talk about um, uh, movies that are from plays, they think it's going to be really talky. But, I mean, a lot of movies themselves are really talky, and they're not necessarily right. from plays. You know, it, one of the reasons I think I really glommed onto One Night Miami is because I really like those talky movies. Uh, you know, I think, you know, people think of. Um, before series, I really love something like Certified Copy or um, mm, yes. Columbus. I would put all of these these kinds of movies in that same kind of kind of subgenre. I don't know what you call it. It's kind of a walking and talking movie. It's just people talking to each other. I love those movies, and I think this is a really great example of it. Yeah, and I think it really lets you. Um, I think it really helps give an extra dose of life to these men in the movie and it lets you sort of see them not just interacting with each other in this room and seeing the personalities clash and bounce off each other, but it lets you see them out in the world and how the world interacts and bounces off of them as well. And that I think just adds this whole other array of, of color and life to the movie that you could never get with a play just because of the sort of like physical constraints of doing something on stage. Absolutely. And, and again, 
I'm I'm guessing that that is coming from Regina King, and I just think that is an that is an incredible thing to be able to do with your first feature. Well, Emily, thank you for hopping on this episode of the latest. Um, we'll definitely have to have you back. You can, our listeners can read your work at filminquiry.com and uh, check out both both movies. Have yourself a double feature of uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom on Netflix and One Night in Miami on Amazon Prime. All right, uh, for our next segment, very happy to have back on the show, Andrew Young. Andrew, how, how are you doing? How's 2021 thanks. shaping up for you thus far? Not bad, better than 2020 so far. It, it can only go up. <laughs> uh, Andrew, you're here because you actually reached out to me and said you were really interested in talking about Supernova, which yes. is a movie that will be, if it's not out already, will be coming out. I know it, it's coming out here in the United States on January 29th. Is it out already in the UK where you are? No, actually, it's not out till March here. Um, we've got oh, wow. Longer, yeah, and all the cinemas are closed at the moment anyway. Here, so yeah, well, same, <laughs> same here. So hopefully there'll be a way for people to watch this at home. But as many of the movies we've discussed in the last month, it's uh, kind of uh, up in the air and changes day to day. Um, but you got a chance to review this movie uh, at the through the the london film festivals kind of digital lineup if i'm not that's right uh mistaken uh and i actually haven't gotten a chance to see it i know it stars stanley tucci and colin firth um but i'm just interested like you seemed really uh passionate about it and really interested to talk about it so what were your feelings on the movie yeah so yeah like you say i saw it at the london film festival um end of last year and it was one of the standouts for me which is why i reached out to you i want to talk about it it's it's a great film. It's a really really good film. Um, it's yes, like I say, Stanley Tucci and Colin Firth. That's the kind of selling point I think for the film. They play a couple um in their kind of fifty-ish region, and they um Sam and Tusker. Sam is Colin Firth, he's a pianist, and um Tusker is an author. That's Stanley Tucci, and Tusker's got young onset dementia. That's the the setup of the film basically. So, so Tusker's kind of slowly um grappling with um the fact that he's got a, a young onset dementia and sam is trying to support him and um do whatever he can to make life better for him and easier for him and it's about their relationship really and how they um, navigate this kind of very dramatic event in their lives really so it's a very gentle very quiet film it's filmed in i don't know if any of the listeners know much about the uk but it's filmed in the lake district near keswick and it's got these lovely shots of uh, lakes and fields and beautiful countryside. So it's got a very kind of soft, nice, natural feel to the whole film. Um, it's sort of a road trip as well, really. So like I said, Colin Firth's character is a musician and he's doing a re like a sort of um, comeback gig um, up in Scotland, I think. And they're taking a sort of road trip from wherever they live, I think in London, to go up north and to, for him to play this last concert kind of thing. Um, so they stop off with Colin Firth's family on the way. And other than that, it's just sort of them in a camper van going through the countryside and talking, really. Talking to each other, talking to friends when they see them and and coping with you know this, this major event in their lives and in their relationship. So 
yeah, it's I loved it. It's a great film. It really is. Um, it's I think some of the best work I've seen from either actor. Um, oh wow! Yeah, I, I mean I haven't, like I said, I ha- you know I haven't seen everything that ever, either of them have done. But it's I what think it, what what I'm curious. What would you kind of like put up there as kind of like the pinnacle of of either Tucci or? Either, I haven't really seen that much of either of them. I mean, here I think particularly in the UK, I think Colin Firth mostly known for all of his sort of romantic leading roles and stuff when he was in Pride and Prejudice here and right. all his Bridget Jones and Lavacci and all that stuff. But then obviously you won his Oscar for the King's Speech and that's a big one. But I think he gives such a... I think if somebody's going to win an award for this, it's going to be Stanley Tucci because I think mm, he has... Interesting. The, he's, he's playing the character that's living with dementia and therefore I think there's more for him to do. It's more kind of the onus is more on his character. But and again, it's really good to see him do that because whenever Stanley Tucci turns up in a film, it's great. You know, he, he's the best thing in the Hunger Games films and in the Devil Wears Prada. And it, it's nice to see him get a really meaty leading role like this. He's kind of often just a support that everyone loves to see. But this is really yeah. He's kind of one of those like go-to character actors that I I just feel like adds like just a little bit of spice and a little bit of flavor to kind of everything he's in. And, you know, I think unless you're familiar with stuff like, um, I, I mean, the the other like leading Stanley Tucci movie that immediately comes to mind is Big Night. This movie he, yeah, he I think directed. actually directed yeah. as well from the 90s um, that uh, is revolves around these two brothers um, who are uh, just trying to start an italian restaurant and uphold that restaurant and tony shalhoub plays his brother and it's it's similar to i mean i have not seen this movie but i think similarly is a movie with very kind of low stakes um but is you're just sort of like kind of that that is the other one that i think you watch him in that movie and it's like oh this is kind of a movie star right here even though i think we think of him primarily as a, a, a character actor. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we also think of, I think a lot of the time, Colin Firth, we think of as more of a leading man type. And here mm-hmm. he he's, he looks, for want of a better word, he looks older. He looks more, he looks more lived in. He's a more, um, like a real character. He hasn't got that kind of movie star quality to him in a way. It's a really down to earth, kind of normal grounded character. And that bounces really well off of Stanley Tucci. Interestingly, um, for anyone who has seen the film, it might be interesting to know that originally Stanley Tucci was supposed to play the other role. So he was... Oh. Um, and so the writer-director, Harry McQueen, who I haven't actually mentioned yet, who did a great job here, and I was lucky enough to interview for Film Inquiry, he told me that he originally approached Stanley Tucci to play the role of Sam, and Stanley Tucci read it and said, no, actually, I want to play the other role here. I want to play Tusker, and then he suggested Colin Firth for the other for the other role, and his director said, "Yeah, sounds good. Why not?" And then that's how it came about, and there you've got the the pair. And Stanley Tucci is so so well suited to this role because his character is a kind of uh, raconteur. He's when they do go to visit family and family and friends, he's the the person telling all the anecdotes and the stories and. He's the one everyone wants to see. He's the life of the party. And like Harry McQueen said, he says he thought it was an interesting contrast to have someone who's so full of life but so painfully aware of his own mortality. 
and that's why he chose that character rather than the sort of straight man to be the the one who is living with dementia, which I thought was really interesting in the film because you see this every time Stanley Tucci talks, you want to listen. He's got such a an, a spark to him, like he say he adds a bit of spice to every film. Like he's just enjoyable to watch and he's fun to watch, and it's it's interesting to watch such a fun actor do something so really incredibly sad here. And it's a character yeah. who knows... It's in, Dementia's um, as a condition is something that you know different people experience differently, but in this film, it's very much a case of he's dying. That's how he sees it. Mm. You know, That's not the case for everyone, but that's the case of how he sees it. Is Tusker feels like he's dying, and it's him coming to terms with that, really. Um, and that's how Harry McQueen kind of set about to make the film, I think. Uh, which was inspired by somebody he knew, a close friend of his, who had a young onset dementia. So he started reading about it, researching it, and decided to make a film. And I just think that comes across really well. It's such a kind of natural film. It's very low key. It's very much an actor's film. Like that, this is gonna if you know if it gets awards conversation, which I, I'm not hearing any kind of buzz for that, but I wish it would because it's really good. I think Stanley Tucci and Colin Firth are going to get that kind of conversation, but the writer and director Harry McQueen might get sort of forgotten about because it is very much an actor's film, which I think is a shame mm-hmm. because what he does here of basically doing nothing, just kind of putting a camera on them and letting them go, is actually quite a hard skill. Like, it's not easy to just make it look like it's easy, if that makes sense. And no, totally. And and I, I definitely think, you know, similarly, uh, something I've been doing lately with my girlfriend, she's never seen any of the, like, Richard Linklater before trilogy. And so we've been watched. Yeah. Which we've, uh, been watching. I think we've watched, we've watched the first two thus far. Um, and I'd, I'd seen them before, but I hadn't seen them since I was probably in college. And, um, that, that is another kind of movie similar to kind of what you're describing where, what you're watching on screen feels very simple and very effortless, but it actually takes an extraordinary amount of planning and precision in order to kind of just have this kind of like simple framing and simple setup, but yet and rest the entire movie on the chemistry of these two people and them just being able to kind of like organically bounce off of each other and have it feel like, this free flowing conversation. Um, so that, that just what you're describing, that's kind of what immediately uh, jumped to mind to me. And I did actually want to ask you about what your thoughts were as far as like the chances this movie has in the awards conversation. Cause I'm sure as we'll discuss in future episodes of this show in yeah. the next couple months, we are entering a very strange award season. Strange. And yeah. um, you know, there's obviously some carryovers from last year, like, Nomadland and Minari or um, Promising Young Woman or Five Bloods. There are a few movies from last year that I think are definitely going to seem like they're going to carry over and get some awards traction as well as stuff coming up that I I, will have to kind of put a pin in like Judas and the Black Messiah Mm -hmm. or Cherry or Malcolm and Marie that kind of look like these last ditch. yeah, these last kind of possibilities coming out in the next couple months. Um, I don't know. You mentioned you kind of think Tucci is a possibility. Is uh, How well do you think this movie could kind of fit into the awards conversation? I was just kind of trying mm-hmm. to wrap my head around 
who kind of are the other possible contenders and yeah, where it's what what fields are kind of more open than others. I think I've yeah, I mean I think an interesting one is uh, one night in Miami as well. I think is a big going to be quite a big player. Yeah, um, which we uh, discussed. Uh, uh, well, you you weren't part of that conversation, but uh, yeah. sort of the inner the interview leading up to the to this right here, yeah. we uh, d- uh, talked about uh, one night in Miami and um, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Yeah, which, which I haven't seen. I yet, think so. That's yeah, why, yeah, I would say um, you definitely have a very strong uh, best actor and probably best supporting actress, um, or however they're running Viola Davis in that movie. Um. At, at least Absolutely. a couple like very strong performance contenders in that movie and certainly uh one night in miami probably another one yeah. that just came out that's probably going to be a big part of the I conversation i think the only well. thing that could hurt one night in miami in that respect um could be the amount of good performances in it um mm-hmm. like i don't know who's the fate who would be the favorite to win an oscar out of the four of them i'd go for kingsley benadir but um but yes that that, that would also affect supernova's chances which is why it's relevant i think i don't know how people know these things but people know somehow what's going to be an oscar runner and what isn't um and some of the trades like have lists of things and stuff and i saw a big long list of sort of everyone they thought could be in the running and stanley tucci was on there as in best supporting actor but the film wasn't colin firth wasn't the director the writer wasn't, and i i don't think it will be in the conversation i think stanley tucci might it's one of those films where it's just sort of a performance that gets picked out. I think it's quite a low-key film. I'm not sure it's going to have the backing. I mean, it's, it's a British film, I think, British director. Mm-hmm. Part of the kind of point of Tucci's character is he's American abroad as well. Um, so I think, I don't know, I'm not sure it's got the traction, really. The director's not a big name. I think if Richard Linklater had made this exact film, it would be there. But it's, right. I feel like Harry McQueen's maybe too early in his career, perhaps, to get the same traction. But, which is a shame. Another thing which I thought was interesting and could affect this is, uh, I don't know if you know the film The Father with Anthony Hopkins. I do. Yeah, and Olivia Colman. Yeah, I've seen that one. I haven't seen that one. We haven't got it here. I don't know when we're getting here. But um, that film, which is about dementia as well, right? That's, um, I've heard that talked about a lot in the in the conversation. I think, I think with Best Actor and Supporting Actress and Best Film and I've heard that mentioned a lot and Although it sounds really reductive to say, and it is, having two dementia-based, two films about dementia, about people um, who have dementia, could almost be too much for the Academy. It feels like the almost this film could get over, Supernova could get overshadowed by the father, even though they're about different people and different lives, and you know dementia doesn't define these people. But I just think the way the Oscars work and the way awards work could mean that supernova almost kind of gets seen as the other film about dementia this year which is a real shame but i kind of cynically cynically i think that's how it works yeah yeah i mean that definitely happens all the time in terms of movies canceling each other out i mean the one that immediately comes to my mind is I forget what year it is, but whatever the year that the imitation game and the theory of everything yeah. were both nominees and both of those just seem to kind of like cancel each other out in terms of just like sort of prestige biopics about British vaguely scientists. famous, yeah. you know, like, yeah, about British scientists and um are, are just sort of known for like 
all right, you kind of like your average person on the street would be like, all right, that's that smart person, right? But they're British. So wait, which which movie is it? And um, I don't I don't know. I yeah. and that's it's a shame something I'm always because it, it is a shame. It does a disservice to the filmmakers, but I know exactly what you mean. It was like Benedict Cumberbatch and Eddie Redmayne. It was like they kind of picked Eddie Redmayne as the one that was going to be in the in the awards like front runner, and that was kind of it. Yeah. For Benedict Cumberbatch's chances that year, and I think. In terms of the film, that could happen with this. And again, I haven't seen the file. I have no idea if it's similar at all in style. Um, but I just cynically, I just feel like that could maybe be why I haven't heard its name mentioned. And also because yeah. there's like maybe the lack of prestige with the filmmaker. But yeah, I will say the father, the father has Hopkins. Yeah, Hop- can never kind of totally count Hopkins no, out. It exactly. is a very um, I will say kind of imb- I, I, as someone who likes the movie, but maybe is not as over the moon about it as um, some other people I know. Um, I, I do think it finds a clever kind of narrative way of tackling dementia and putting you as an audience in kind of the headspace of someone who feels like the world is kind of constantly changing around them and they can't quite hold their bearings and know what's happening from moment to moment. Um, but does have a very, very flashy Anthony Hopkins perform very at times charming mm. Anthony Hopkins performance at the center. Um, so I, I, I definitely think at the very least that that movie will certainly be a big contender in the, the best actor race, but I don't know, maybe um, Tucci can kind of get in yeah. supporting, and supporting, I, he's yeah. only got one other nomination before I was gonna say The Lovely that's, Bones. That's important, I think. Um, it, he feels like one of those actors that everybody loves and everyone respects, and everyone knows he's really good, but like you say, he's a kind of character actor who adds a bit of fun to a film, and he feels like one of those actors that he's at a stage in, you know, he's quite a bit way through his career now, and it almost feels like somebody could be like, oh, we've never given him an Oscar, like we love, we love Sunny Tucci. We know he's great. We've never, we've barely given him any nominations. Like maybe we should do it. It kind of happens, you know. Something like Julianne Moore when she won, a lot of people like this is almost right. like a career Oscar. It's not really a full out film as much, um, which is also about um, someone with dementia as well. I was yeah. just about to say, <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, and I remember people saying that. I remember people saying that about DiCaprio with The Revenant. Like this is nowhere near his best performance, but it feels like they thought, oh, we should probably give Leo an Oscar. Um, so maybe that that could help. I also think something that would, again, cynically maybe count against the film is its lack of a sort of Oscar clip, maybe that kind of thing where um, films have a kind of emotional crescendo and a big moment of outpouring. Like whereas with mm. this film, one of the things I loved about it, I think was so impressive about it is like it's it's a real it is a tearjerker and like I cried when I was watching it, but I kind of was on the verge of tears like the whole way through the film, as opposed to being it's sort of you watch the film, watch the film, and then there's that big moment when you cry, and that's kind of the bit that the filmmakers clearly said, right, they're gonna cry at this moment. And it, it, it doesn't do that. There's no emotional manipulation. It's not engineered any, in any way. Like the whole thing is just really deeply felt and warm and gentle and sad. And you watch it kind of feeling all this stuff and then it ends and you're just like, oh, that was so sort of... It, it's it's kind of a weird feeling because it's very sad and very moving, but also quite heartwarming. And the love that it depicts is so kind of feels so genuine and authentic between the pair of them. 
Um, but I do think because of that style of filmmaking, which isn't very flashy at all, it, it's the kind of film that maybe doesn't get given awards. Andrew, thank you for stopping by to uh, get us excited for Supernova and to start your um, Oscar campaign for Stanley Tucci. <laughs> yes, uh, I'd love to. <laughs> uh, look forward to all the outpouring of Stanley Tucci uh memorabilia and flyers that will be entering my mailbox from you um so good luck on the campaign trail and uh we'll have to have you back yes one of these weeks